Okay, Psalm 3. You're now God's word. Save me, O oh my God, is the title of this psalm. And the title of the psalm also extended to the psalm of David and the fled from Absalom. O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him, but God. But you, O oh Lord, you are a shield about me. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and He answered me from His holy breath. I lay down in the sun, and I woke again to the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the and the blessing be well, have you ever been with people? I found this true with myself. I have several precious friends, my, my sister, who folks who just to have, have seem to have such an intimacy and such a communion with the Lord, particularly even when they pray. Um, I was uh, in Haiti several years ago, leading a team down there. It's right after the earthquake in Haiti back in 2010, and we were aligned with a team down there. And one of the team leaders who was there hosting us was a lady named by, by the name of Bonnie. And uh, Bonnie is just a godly, godly woman. Uh, such a close and intimate walk in communion with the Lord. And she's from North Carolina, real thick southern accent. Um, and, and you meet her and you think she's the fifth down in Haiti. But she is such a godly, wise, strong lady. And uh, throughout the weeks there in Haiti when we were ministering side, alongside of her and her husband, Daryl, um, she would just stop and pray for our team stop and pray for individuals. You know, we'd be out laying brick and sweating in the Haitian sun and Bonnie would come up and lay a hand on praying. And, uh, every time she prayed, I cried. Every single time. Uh, Bonnie had such a communion and a closeness with Jesus. Such a close, intimate prayer with the Lord. And I just loved being prayed for by, by Bonnie. I loved praying with her. And sometimes it would just take my breath away. And I felt like such a spiritual midget. You ever felt that way around folks before? You just feel like a, a spiritual pygmy around giants of the faith like that. And that's how I feel often when I wander around the prayers of the song. It's like a spiritual pygmy. I don't know about you, but I read the prayers of the psalm. Sometimes I try to pray along with the psalmist in the prayer to the Lord, and I, just, I feel so small in my attempts to even pray these words of the psalmist. And that's what we come to today in Psalm 3. We come to a prayer of David. And, and it's clear from the title that we just read in the psalm of what's going on in the context of David's life as he prays the psalm. What does it say is going on in David's world in the context of going on in his life? It says when he was fleeing from Absalom, his son. Now David was in some serious trouble in his life. Isn't it true of us that often the way we slug through troubles and trials in our life is prayer? Psalm 3 is a great reminder of how we can pray. That Eugene Peterson says that trouble often triggers prayer. Trouble triggers prayer. So that's what we're going to see this morning in this prayer, the prayer life of David when he's facing some serious trouble in his life. So quickly, let's look at the background of this psalm. It's when his son Absalom is in rebellion and tries to seize the throne of his father David. And he tries to do that by literally trying to murder his father David and uh, also killing off all of his father's loyalists. Now, if you remember the details of King David's life, you remember that God had brought judgment upon David, right, for that whole Bathsheba and Uriah mess. 
I won't go into detail about that whole story, but you can read in 2 Samuel 11 to 12 about what happened with David and his sin with Bathsheba. But the fact that David's son, Absalom, was trying to murder him and take, uh, take his throne by force was part of the consequence of David's sin. Okay? But we should also remember, not only was this a consequence of David's sin, but we've got to remember who David was. We saw this a few weeks ago when we were looking at Psalm 2, but David was God's king, right? And Psalm 2 told us very clearly that God had installed his king, David, on the throne of Jerusalem. He was God's man. He was God's boy. He was God's king. And God had installed him on the throne. And so Absalom, his son, even though it was his daddy, he didn't have any special privileges in the sense that he was messing with God's man. He was messing with God's king. And so when he's messing with God's man, Absalom is messing with God himself. So we're going to see that David and Absalom are in some serious trouble here. And King David is driven to prayer because of the serious trouble he's facing with his son Absalom in Psalm 3. So, in fact, there's so much trouble in Psalm 3. And, and, and as you read the first, and there's really the first 19 or so psalms, after you get past Psalm 1 and 2, 3 through 19 deal with a lot of trouble. And so many of us, as we read the Psalms, it's kind of hard to read through the first 19 Psalms because of all the trouble that's going on, right? And here David's in serious trouble in Psalm 3, and, and, and my prayer is, as I've been thinking about this and preparing for this this week, that if you're in serious trouble today, you know what trouble's going on. Right? These words in this prayer would, would be for you, because you know what's trouble. My prayer is that as we look at these words and the prayers of David, you would be encouraged to take your trouble to the Lord this morning. So as we're walking through this psalm, remember David is God's anointed king, right? So I hope and my prayer is that you're going to be able to identify with David. Even though he's a king, that you're going to be able to be, be able to identify with him and what's going on and troubling him in his life. So we're going to see four movements quickly this morning in the psalm. The first one is this, is the enemies that we face. The enemies that we face as believers here in this world. Well, David starts the psalm by talking to God and telling him right about the many, many, many foes that he faces. And he says, not only are my foes many, there are tens of thousands, he says, but here's what they're doing to me, God. So David's talking to the Lord and saying, God, here's what happened. And we have permission to do that. And it's good to be able to take our laments and our grievances to the Lord. And so David does that. He says, God, many are my foes around me. Here's what they are saying about you and they're saying about me. He's saying that there is no salvation for me. My enemies are saying, David, there's no salvation for you. You're too messed up. You're too screwed up. You're too far gone. David's enemies aren't saying God cannot help him. They are saying, David, God, your God will not help you. It reminds me of what the Pharisees say to Jesus on the cross. Remember this in Matthew 27? How the Pharisees, the, the elders, the teachers of the law were mocking Jesus on the cross. And they were saying the same thing Jesus as he was hanging there on the cross. Listen to what they say in Matthew 27 about Jesus as he was on the cross. They, mock, they begin to mock Jesus saying he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and then we will believe in him. And then get this. This is what they say about Jesus hanging on the cross. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. In other words, the Pharisees were saying to Jesus, God's not going to rescue you. God's not going to help you. Very words to Pharisees to Jesus. So those are severely painful words. David's saying to God, God, these are severely painful words 
They are cutting me deeply. And in a sense, these words were, were true in a sense. And I think they can be true for us too because if you look at it like this, we don't deserve any of God's mercies to We don't deserve any of God's daily kindness that he, that he, that he gives us. So really the best defense that David could have done here when his enemies were saying, God's not going to help David. You know what David should have said? You know what? You're right. God shouldn't help me. God shouldn't save me. I don't deserve any of his mercy. The great and famous composer George Frederick Condell, uh, when critics would come to him and criticize his music, he was a gifted composer. I I'm not much of a classical music guy, but I know he's written some amazing, famous pieces that are used even in churches in sacred music. The critics would come to him and make fun of his music. And you know what he would say? Instead of getting defensive, he goes, "Yeah, you're right. It's pretty poor stuff. I thought so when I wrote it." That's what he would say about his own. It's almost like David should have said the same thing. Yeah, you know, you're right. God shouldn't help me. He should. I shouldn't be receiving His mercies. But He gives me mercies in me every morning. And that's sometimes pointing to the fact that often we should just own our poverty. David should have just owned it and said, Yeah, you're right. I don't deserve God's mercy. And it helps us when we own our poverty. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the what? Poor in spirit, for they should see the kingdom of God. Instead of making excuses or fighting, we own our poverty. And then when we do that, it draws the sting away and we can get on with the real problems that we often struggle with. The second movement we see this morning is the God that we confess. So we see the enemy that we face. David saw the enemy that he faced and he proclaimed that to God. And then he goes on and talks about the God that he confessed. So David tells us about this multitude of enemies and the painful words that they used to attack him. And then he makes this big shift in his words and he begins to fill his vision and his prayer with God. And it's in this portion of the prayer that we see what kind of God David has. And what kind of God that we have that we can pray to in our trouble. But first he says that God, you are a protecting God. Look what he says in, in, in verse 3 and 4. He says what? How does he proclaim and say who God is? God, you are a what? A shield around me. And that's exactly the kind of God that David needed to me. And if you read the account of uh, Absalom and his rebellion against his father David in 2 Samuel, uh, David's literally running for his life. He's leaving his kingdom. He's leaving Jerusalem. He left the throne. He got out of town. And he's literally running for his life because his own son is literally trying to come and cut him down with the sword. David needed a shield around him. God was a shield. He was a shield around him. Secondly, what does he proclaim about God? He says, not only are you a protecting God, but God, you are a sufficient God. I love what David calls the Lord here. Look at what he says. But you, O Lord, are shield about me. What did he say? You are Lord. You, O Lord, are my Lord. Not only are you a shield about me, God, but you are my Lord. What does glory mean? It's a term that means weightiness, substance, or wealth. So, so David's about to have his kingdom taken away by his own son here in rebellion, right? But it doesn't matter. Why? Because Yahweh, the Lord, is his glory. Now, he may be losing his glory in the sense of his rule, right? But he has all the glory he needs in the Lord himself. I love what the, the NIV commentary on the psalm says. David recognizes that his only hope, according to the commentary here, his only hope is in the unimpeachable honor, honor and dignity supplied and guaranteed by the Lord of Lords. I love that. 
The Lord can be your glory. You can have unimpeachable honor in the Lord alone. You know, you don't want your glory to come from your humanness and your abilities and your skills, whether you're athletic or artistic, or you come from a great family pedigree. David's saying, no, the God of the universe can be your glory. You know, don't bring your own glory to the table. That glory fades. It gets worn out, right? God said He will bestow honor and glory on you if you submit and trust Him. So I, love, I love this part of the verse. I love that part of the passage. My prayer is that maybe you're seeing these words here this morning in Psalm 3 and your God in His grace is bringing to light in your life the glory that you so long to have, the righteousness that you cling to that your own. God's going to begin to say, you know what? It's going out. That really is worth it. I am the one who will give you glory. I will be the one to bestow glory on your head. And I will lift your head. So we've seen that God is protecting, that He's sufficient, and always He's sufficient. Thirdly, we see that He's a restoring God. David calls to God and says, God, you're the one who can lift up my head. You know, if you read this account of David and how he handled the rebellion of his son Absalom, you go through 2 Samuel and see how he felt about this. He was totally broken over his son rebelling against him. You know, even though in a sense his son had become his enemy, right? Because David was God's man on the throne. He still deeply loved his son and he wept many times throughout the story when he referred to his son Absalom. In fact, 2 Samuel 15.30, listen to what it says about David and what he dealt with this. It says, David continued up to the Mount of Olives to go and pray, actually, as he was fleeing from his son. And it very well could have been that he prayed Psalm 3 in this part of 2 Samuel. Kind of neat. So he's going up to the Mount of Olives to pray, dealing with all this stuff for his son. Totally broken over. And 2 Samuel says, he went up to the Mount of Olives weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. And all the people who went with him covered their heads and were weeping to his face. David was in desperate need of God's restoring touch. So God is our protector. He's sufficient. He restores us. And the last thing we learn about God here in Psalm 3 is that He's an accessible God. So David says, With my voice I cry out to the Lord, and He answered me, verse 4, from His holy hill. This was a desperate prayer for David, right? And what's fascinating about this is David is physically fleeing right from his son Absalom. He's leaving Jerusalem. He's leaving his throne. He's leaving the tabernacle of God. He's putting distance, real physical distance, between himself and God's tabernacle, Jerusalem. But he says that my prayers nonetheless go to God's holy hill. They get to God's holy hill, even when I have no physical access to it. Pretty cool. Adele Ralph Davis, in his uh, commentary on this psalm, he tells this story about the famous photograph of the Marines. Y'all remember this picture? And I think there's a memorial in D.C. that memorializes this picture. But it's the picture of the four Marines on Iwo Jima in 1945 who were planting the flag right after they defeated the Japanese there. Y'all remember that picture? It's just a very famous picture. Well, Del Ralph Davis says that back in 1945, that picture was circulating all over newspapers in the United States. It's just a, a famous photograph. And in this Texas town, there was a guy named Ed Watt. That day, that picture came out in the newspapers across the country. Ed was sitting there reading that uh, article and seeing that picture in his hometown in, in uh, Texas. And Ed's mom walks by and glances down at the picture in the newspaper and, uh, of the Marine thrusting the American flag down into the ground in Iwo Jima. She walked by and she stopped. She looked at the picture and then told her son, Ed, Ed, I think that's your brother Harlan in that picture. 
Edgar is, Mom, there's no way that could be, be, be my brother and your son Harley. There's no way that you could recognize who that was because you're seeing the backside of the guy that you think is Harlan in the picture. You can't see his face. It's just a picture of a guy and you see his back planting the American flag and he was Jesus. There's no way that you could know that's your son. And, and by the way, we don't even know if Harlan's in Iwo Jima, right? There's no way that you could know that fella is Harlan in the picture. But his mom, Belle, Ed's mom, Belle, was very sure that it was. And so she walked away, turned around and said, I know my boy, any day I see him, I know my boy. Well, it turns out the figure that she was talking about, that she thought was Harlan in the picture, was actually the name of a guy named Henry Hanson. But Mrs. Bell Block was still convinced that the person she saw in the picture, that famous photograph of her son, Harlan, she was unmoved in her maturity about that. Well, sadly, the family soon received word that Harlan had been killed in action in Iwo Jima. But two years later, in 1947, after additional testimony in time, they received a notice of correction. Henry Hansen had not been the one in that picture. The fellow planting the flag in Iwo Jima was Harlan Black, who was her son. Bell Black, part, Bell Black hardly surprised, is recorded as saying to the reporters, I know my boy any day. I know my boy. What David's saying here in verses 3 and 4, in the middle of all of this serious trouble, he's saying, I know my God. I know my God. In all of the middle of this chaos, he turns his eyes to protecting, sufficient, and soaring, and acceptable God. He says, I know my God. See, the God centeredness of his focus keeps him steady. Even when the enemies are swirling around and trying to destroy him, David knows that's third movement we see this morning is the peace that we can claim in the midst of that trouble. So after seeing the serious mess and trouble that David's in, he makes this amazing shift in his prayer, right? And he tells the Lord, God, I have laid down and gone off to sleep. It's almost like he's thanking the Lord that he's asleep. But what in the world? Here David's got these attempts on his life. There's a coup in his kingdom. His own son is trying to cut him down with a sword. And David says he's going to go and sleep. What's up with that, right? Well, the sequence of the, the text here helps us kind of understand. Notice in verse 5, David's very emphatic. He says what? I lay down and I slept. But he says that emphatically after the emphatic that we see in verse 3 of three. So basically, here's what he's saying. He's saying, God, you're my shield about me. You protect me. You're my sustainer, my restorer, my comforter. You protect me. It's you, Lord, who does that. And because of that, I can sleep. Another way you can put it is, God, because of who you are and what you are, David says, I can lay down and sleep. Because of who you are and what you are, I can lay down and sleep. You see, David's peace here is immediate. He can lay down and sleep because God is God. But his peace can be long-term as well. Look at verse 6. It's in the future tense, right? David goes on to say, I will not be afraid of the thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around See, David is not held in this grip of fear for this, this peace that he had that night wasn't just one quick little night flash of peace. But he's knowing who God is, that God is his God. And God is what he is and, and will protect him, sustain him, lift his head and keep his glory. That controls the way David looks at his future. You see, David doesn't have peace from the hard. David doesn't have peace from the turmoil. But he's able to have peace in the midst 
He doesn't have peace from it. Enemies are still going on around him. And he knows that those enemies are going to be coming after him even in the, in the near future. But he can have peace in the midst of the turmoil because God is God is God. God is who He is and what He is. He can lay down His you know, Verse 5 here makes me think of another verse in Psalm 127 that's very similar. In fact, I like how the, the, new, the, the King James Version, the old King James Version, raises this verse in Psalm 127. Verse 5, it says, It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrow. For so he giveth his beloved to sleep. For so the Lord giveth his beloved to sleep. You know what comforts me in this life? Especially as a pastor, being responsible for the flock here at Wellspring. For so many of you, there's lots of you. You know what comforts me so deeply in this life? And not just as a pastor, but as a person, as a believer. The Yahweh, that the Lord can look after the That really comforts me. The Lord is the one who looks after the Do you find comfort in that? To love that is a comforting thing. You're freaking out. When there are troubles around you, you feel like you're about to sink. The Lord can take care of you. You can call this out there. I think that every single one of you, including me, the Lord can control the picture of you. That comfort is so deep. And because of that truth, that the Lord can take care of His kingdom, you can sleep. You can sleep. Sometimes I know we wake up and we don't always sleep well. As you get older, I know. Sometimes it's hard. You know, we've got aches and pains. Bathroom breaks in the middle of the night and all that kind of stuff. But when you lay back down to sleep, know that He can look after His own kingdom. He does. So David knew that and he goes off to sleep because he knew that the Lord was a shield, a sustainer, even in the midst of his heart, even in the midst of his trouble. Only the Lord can give you that kind of peace in the midst of trouble. So quickly, let's look at the last movement here in Psalm 3. The help that we receive. The help that we receive. The verse 7 and 8, we come to this realization. David comes to this realization that, that the Lord delights to help us, right? But we get to verses 7 and 8. For some folks who read verses like this in 7 and 8, they get upset, right, that God would help His people in such a way like this. They get upset when they get to parts of Psalm like this because it talks about violence, right? Look at verse 7. God, You shall strike all of my enemies on the jaw. You shall shatter the teeth of the wicked. I mean, it looks like God's uh, enemies here are going to need some major dental work, right? Now, I think this prayer here in the in this psalm makes people nervous because David's asking God to get violent. Wait a minute. We're not supposed to pray that way. Are we? That's crazy. You're not supposed to ask God to get violent on his enemies. And then it might be for some an issue when you read this that not only is David praying that God would get violent, that he would kick his enemies in the teeth, but it seems that David is even vengeful, right, in his prayer. We shouldn't seek vengeance, right? That's wrong. Well, see, David's not vengeful here. On the contrary, it's appropriate the way he prays because David is committing vengeance to God. He's asking God to deliver. David isn't taking action in his own hands. He's saying, God, you're the one who seeks vengeance for your beloved. You see, you've got to remember the context of this psalm, right? David's, if David's going to be saved from the serious trouble that he's in, you know, there's 10,000 soldiers surrounding him ready to kill him. God's going to have to be the one to take down those who oppose his kingdom. See, there's no safety 
for David here unless his enemies are taken out. Right? Maybe another way to put this is, uh, you know, as we moved here last year from North Carolina to Virginia, one of the, the wonderful things about moving to Virginia is there's not many bugs. Here. Not really not. You know, I know we have the stink bugs. Things aren't so bad. It's not bad. Because in North Carolina, we had cockroaches the size of small dogs. They were huge. I'm not kidding you. I mean, they were big, and they fly. They're like, and they fly at you, and you're ducking them. It's just horrible. And uh, no, I'll never forget one night back in North Carolina, I was sleeping. Uh, middle of the night, in a sound dead asleep, and I felt something crawling on my face, and I had the sickening sensation of something crawling on my face. And so I'm halfway asleep. I brush it off. And then in that instant terror hits me, I go, that's a roach, you know, and I sit up in bed and sure enough, there's a big old cockroach sitting there where I brushed him off my face and he landed on the end of the bed and then he scurried off. And I'm like, ah, catch him. So I'm jumping up in bed. Chris lands like, what's wrong? Is there an intruder? You know, and I'm looking under the bed. I'm looking in the bathroom, looking in the closet. I couldn't find the roach. And so inevitably I get back in the bed and here I am, wasn't you know, sleeping peacefully as a believer, <laughs> trusting the Lord. I was worried about the cockroach and the whole, you know, the whole night. I, I was sleeping kind of fitfully thinking that cockroach is going to crawl on me again. You know, and Presley Ann's like, ah! You know? You see, until the threat is removed, it's hard to feel secure, right? Until the threat is removed, it's hard to feel secure. That's the way it was with David's situation. He was dealing with forces far worse than a little cockroach. And until the threat was removed, he couldn't feel secure. And so no wonder he prayed this way. For David to have salvation, his enemies must be destroyed, Right? Psalm 3 reminds me of so much of what's going on right now, particularly in the Middle East. Many Christians are being severely persecuted. If you're in a situation like that on this mountain in Iraq, surrounded by these ISIS forces, knowing that you could be killed, your children could be raped, taken, you better believe you're going to face it. You're comfortable here in the United States. We read these Psalms and it's a bit uncomfortable for us, but when your life is on the line for the sake of Christ, you better bet you pray. We can even see this continued in the New Testament. How do we pray for believers? How do we pray for those believers around the world today who are being persecuted for their faith? We take cues from Psalm 3. We take cues from Revelation 6. Remember in Revelation 6, the prayer of the martyrs? Remember this? Revelation 6, the prayer of the martyrs. Listen to this. John says in Revelation, when, when, when Jesus opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain and killed for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And listen to their prayer. The martyrs cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? You see, if God's servants are ever to be vindicated, those who are crushing them must be judged. God's got to do some kicking teeth in You know what I'm saying? And He can pray that. We can pray for those believers around the world that the Lord would seek vengeance from them, that the Lord would avenge those believers and deliver them. Well, the psalm ends with this reminder of promise and then a benediction. David ends the psalm saying what? Salvation belongs to the Lord. The blessing be on the people. And then what is the word that comes right at the end of the psalm? Do you see it? Does it say it? Maybe either at the bottom or does it say it out to the right of it? see a word? One word. What does it say? Selah. You know what that word means? That's a word that we often, you know, we read the Psalms and we see that, oh, that's nice, but we don't really, and some of your Bibles have footnotes and kind of describes what that term may mean. But often we just skip over it. It's a very important word in, in the Scriptures, actually. 
And it's very important in, in the way it tells you how to read the song. We don't ultimately know what the word meant, but most scholars believe that it was a musical term that indicated a pause. You know, if you play music, if you're able to read a little bit of music, you can read a little bit. You know, you cut, you're reading the music, you're playing, and you come to a, a rest in the music, right? A pause. And the reason that musicians or composers will put a pause or a rest in music is to, to accentuate the music, to accentuate the passage, right? It's, it's to make that part of the song or part of the lyrics stand out. It's to pause, it's to remind you of, stop here, this is important. You've got to pay attention. And that's kind of what the word Selah means as you read the psalm. Stop here and pay attention. If we look at it like this, you can almost translate it. And, and we see the word Selah three times in this song. Okay? You can almost translate it like this. David would pray, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? There are so many people around me, God, who want my life. I am in serious trouble. I am in thick trouble, Lord. They are saying there is no salvation for me. Think about that. But David's saying, think about that. Think about what you're facing. Maybe you're facing trouble right now in your life. Think about that. And in a sense, it's almost mocking. Many are my foes, and they're saying that, God, you can't help me. <laughs> think about that for me. That's a joke. God, you're real. Then he goes on, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. All up there. You are a shield about me. You are my glory, Lord. I'm about to lose my kingdom. I'm about to lose my son, but God, you're my glory. That's powerful, church. Hear that. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to you and you answered me. Think on that for a minute. See what he's doing? Lord, you're my salvation. And it belongs to you alone. And nothing can take away that from me, David says. It's as if he's saying in verse 8, Lord, it's not just my troubles and fears or my enemies, but these situations are the lot of all of your people. It's all of your people. Let your blessing, let your saving help come to those who are in trouble. Think on that for a minute, David. See what he's doing in this song? See what he's doing here in that song? Think the Lord gives us the Lord's table. It's like this table right here says, Selah. Think on this for a minute. What Christ has done for you on the cross. Think on it. Stick your life. Selah. Paul, you, won't go any, you don't go any further than the cross. Stop there. You don't need to go any further. Think on it. I love what Paul says in Romans 5, 10. He says, and this relates to Psalm 3. For a while, if we were God's enemies, Paul says, we were reconciled to Him for the death of His Son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? You see, in a real sense, Jesus took our enemies on Himself. In a real sense, we're the enemies here in Psalm 3 for God. And God could have kicked our teeth in. We absolutely deserve to have our teeth kicked in and far worse. But Christ took our eneminess on Himself on the cross. And all of the violence and the wrath of God that should be poured out on God's enemies, us, He instead pours that out on His Son. So in a sense, Jesus' teeth are kicked in far worse. Instead of Jesus, 
Jesus became the enemy on the cross so that we could be. So that, that's what Psalm 3 is ultimately that Jesus became the enemy for us. And that's what we observe here when we observe communion, we observe the Lord's Supper. But this table reminds us that Jesus was broken on the cross for us. He became the enemy of God instead of us so that we can be forgiven so that He can pour out His grace on us. So I'm going to ask the elders today would now come forward as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. And as they're coming forward, just let me remind you, folks, that this is not Wellspring's table. This is not Wellspring Presbyterian Church's table. This isn't the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church's table. This is the Lord's table. This is God's table. And He is inviting you, if you are in Christ, if you have trusted Him, your faith is in Christ alone, that He has invited you to partake of the Lord's Supper with us here today. If you're not sure of where you stand with Him, let me encourage you to allow these elements to pass about. Don't be embarrassed about that. Don't, don't feel awkward about that. That's okay. We understand that. We encourage you to allow these elements to pass by if you don't know the Lord, because we don't want you to bring judgment upon yourself. But instead, use this time for you to examine your heart and, and ask, Lord, where am I with you? Where do I stand with you? Have I submitted my life to you? I want to know you. If your child is not yet a communicant member, they've not met with the elders of Wellspring and been uh, allowed in as communicant members of Wellspring, again, we encourage you to allow those elements to pass by your child. And again, not to embarrass them, to use this time to share with them and explain the gospel of grace to them. Because remember, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace with God was placed upon him. He became the enemy of Satan. To come to this table, Selah, false. Bring your troubles. Bring your serious and thick troubles to this table. Run to this table to receive grace and help in the time. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, He took bread and He broke it. He gave thanks. He broke it saying, This is My body broken for you. Eat this and remember it for you. Lord, we thank You that Your ultimate will is Lord, we thank You for Your ultimate willingness to take our sin upon Yourself. We thank You that, Lord Jesus, Your body truly was broken for us. And we ask that, Lord, You would set us, set apart, consecrate this bread from a secular to a sacred meat, that we might always, always, always remember and treasure the sacrifice of our God.
same manner also Jesus took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. As long as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We proclaim the Lord's death in the sense that that's our only hope of salvation. The death and resurrection. The resurrection of the Lord. So this proclaims the Lord's death until he comes again. Father, we're thankful that this cup reminds us of the blood that we shed for our forgiveness. Would you set apart this cup from sacred, secular to a sacred so that we might never forget the Christ? God on the cross, horrible, horrible physical death. This is David separated from Jerusalem, from the temple, as he's fleeing from the son Absalom. That pales in comparison to the separation that he felt Jesus in the His father silenced himself. He didn't hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. He didn't hear, this is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. And Jesus died in silence, taking our sin and Thank you that you rose again for the third day. Lord, because you defeated not only for the death, but you defeated the You defeated You defeated the deep, ingrained sin that's in all of us. Thank you that Jesus, you are. 
pray that, Lord Jesus, we would treasure you above all things. We would treasure you above everything. Lord Jesus, you are our glory. Let's stand and sing our last closing hymn.